Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the original Demonic Bad Boy and Capcom's fifth best-selling series, Devil May Cry. And uh, fair warning, we'll be diving into all manner of spoilers. Released in 2001 by Capcom, Devil May Cry is a third-person gothic hack-and-slash with a good dash of B-movie charm to boot. Following demon hunter Dante, who embarks on a journey to enact revenge against the demon lord Mundus, who killed his mother and brother. And while Devil May Cry holds a special place in Neil's heart, this was my first time with the series, so we've enlisted the help of concept artist and friend of the show, Matt Jordan, to chat about why 20 years later, Devil May Cry remains a favorite of theirs. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here, talking about legitimately one of my favorite series of all time. Well, we're glad to have you. And uh, for those that don't know, Matt actually uh, designed our podcast art as well as uh, scoring our ambient track that plays in the background of episodes. So it feels like it is long overdue to have you on to uh, chat horror games. Thanks. And uh, in terms of Devil May Cry, do you remember your sort of introduction to the original game and what initially stood out to you about it? Yeah, so uh, at the risk of getting immediately booted off this podcast, my intro to Devil May Cry... (laughs) was uh, actually Devil May Cry 2. That was the first game I played. And hear me out, I was 13 when this game came out. And unironically, completely in the pocket for a cool demon with two guns and a sword and a trench coat. So I got Devil May Cry 2, I got that game day one and was in love with it. Like I just, I played like both characters. I you know, went through Bloody Palace. I unlocked like everything I could. And then, you know, went backwards, played Devil May Cry 1. Uh, a couple years later, Death May Cry 3 came out and ended up being pretty much my favorite game of all time. And then uh, from then on, I was just, I was sold on the whole franchise. Yeah, this was my first time playing the original Devil May Cry, but I had a similar experience with uh, the Resident Evil series, right? I came to Resident Evil 2 before I came back and really got to experience the first one. And then, of course, I went through and played all the sequels. But that might be not the best uh, example based off of <laughs> my experience uh, with uh, 1, but then also yeah. in playing a, a couple hours of Devil May Cry 2 and 3. But uh, how about you, Neil? What was your sort of first experience playing Devil May Cry, the original? Well, it was that fabled demo on the Code Veronica PS2 copy which uh, is where i got to finally play it and yeah fell in love from the beginning you know that whole cheesy as fuck intro <laughs> uh, with the whole you know i mean if anything epitomized the early 2000s whole sort of inspired by anime the matrix you know and you know that new metal sort of style it was there and that was everything i loved at that point so it was like there in a game and it was like yes this is brilliant and then to play it and to actually do all this absurd stuff that was happening in an action game you know where storytelling was only just sort of coming to the fore it was like everything that was unintentional about Resident Evil's early sort of cheesiness here almost feels like it's embraced and then it was like ah oh, yeah and that combined with which I think uh, you know Kamiya said that he was inspired by the idea of people watching people play games in the arcades and watching their skills and how they, you know, pull stuff off. And that was basically the basis for the whole combat system. And you can see it, you know, the first sort of move that really struck me was the whole using the sword as an uppercut to then knock the enemy in the air and shoot them with the ebony and ivory pistols. And it's just like, after seeing that, it's like, this game is cool as shit. You know, we have to, I have to play this. And 
yeah, it was, you know, in, I think we said before, 2001 was like a stellar year in terms of big games coming, and especially for me in terms of stuff I love to this day. And yeah, that was the start of a beautiful relationship that lasted a couple of years until the second one came out and ruined everything. Um, <laughs> I will say is this was my first uh, experience with it. I picked up pretty quickly that subtlety is not a big part of these series. But <laughs> that being said, literally, I mean, Dante gets skewered with the sword in the first few moments of the uh, opening cutscene, and then he gets a motorcycle thrown at him and all these sort of over-the-top shenanigans. But the way that you put it, I think, is perfect in that this game embraces it so it works in a way that really complements the entire sort of sensibilities of the first game and the tone that's set immediately but then it really has this sort of layered combat system to it that I really appreciate it because, right, it's one thing if a game goes out of its way to be super silly and to have demons and gun swordplay and things, but I was taken aback by sort of just the the depth in the combat system if you want to chase it, right? I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll expose myself now. I was not very good at this game and because I'm just <laughs> shit at most challenging games and uh, we, we covered that on our Bloodboard episode as well <laughs> but uh, so I got like the easy mode but I was still appreciative of the fact that like sure I could kind of just stand in the back and just like use the pistols and take guys out from afar or I could start to juggle characters and then yeah. I could kind of use the guns to juggle or I could use sword combos or then I could use sort of the, uh, the powers that uh, he has that make him full demonic but I think Childhood Jay would have clicked with this game instantly for all the reasons that you guys were talking about, right? It kind of has that new metal sensibility to it where you've got the cool guy with the trench coat. He's got the one-liners. He's got the two guns and he's just got this like carefree attitude about everything. There's demons and monsters and stuff like that. But uh, I guess, Matt, for you, when you think about Devil May Cry, what's the first element of the game that stands out? Is it that style? Is it the gameplay? Is it the uh, sort of like B-movie charm that it has? I like all of the elements, but it is, like, the gameplay is definitely the pass or fail for me. Like, that's that's what draws me into the game. You know, that there, there's kind of this legacy of Devil May Cry where your first playthrough is almost not even the canonical one. That's like, you trying to figure out how the bosses mm. work, figure out how to even engage with the combat. You play through it all the way through once, then you have it figured out. Then you play it through on a harder difficulty, and you just start kicking ass and, like, looking really cool while you're doing it. That, to me, is when, you know, Devil May Cry starts. It's like the credits roll, and then you're like, okay, I can actually play this game now for the first time. <laughs> and yeah, that, that gameplay, I've just never found, uh, never found anything quite that satisfying outside of maybe a fighting game, you know, which is appropriate to the Capcom. But it's interesting to have a game that is primarily not just you fighting other opponents that are balanced with a moveset like yours, but balanced around your moveset. You know, like every enemy yeah. has kind of trip to it. Every enemy has a, a sort of feel for how you actually have to fight it. And that to me is, is just endlessly fun. Like the different mix-ups and enemies you get and learning how to style them and everything is amazing. Yeah, I was surprised how accessible it felt, right? Because that, like I said, I'm not the best at playing uh, difficult games, but I mean, whether or not it had a uh, an easy mode that it'll unlock if you're generally shit at it like I was, it's still nice though that you have the tool set that you can actually get pretty far, even if you end up dying at the, the lava spider boss like six times in a row like I did. Don't, don't feel bad about that. Every single person can die at But I love that at least I was never frustrated to the point where I was like, oh, I'll take a break and go do something else and then come back. It was like you have the tool set and there's at least enough 
variation in using both the ranged and uh, close quarters combat that you can get into a rhythm. And while you might not get uh, like an exceptional combat rating every time at the end of something, at least it's satisfying enough that it pushes me to the next encounter or it pushes me to search out uh, the next red orb so I can level up my sword or uh, ebony and ivory, the handguns and whatnot. But Neil, how about you? What is the sort of first element of the game that maybe stands the test of time, but has always really resonated with you other than just sort of, like we had said, we both uh, enjoyed the the new metal aesthetic of it. What other elements of it really kind of like first come to mind for you? I think it's the, you know, as much as I love uh, the combat stuff and how it progresses, <laughs> it's ironically the story and how it's performed, if you will. Um, back then, because as I say, games were new to all the stories having luck and it was like uh, anything a step above what Resident Evil had been doing was like passable. This was like, yeah, this, you know, a time where you're sort of discovering all these cult 80s movies that have that sort of quality to them, where it's, there's a naffness, but they're also really, really cool in a way to a teenager growing up at that point. And it had that for me then. And I was always replaying it, not just for the combat, but to sort of see the story again and again, much like I'd watch films again and again at the time. You know, it, it was something that I really sort of imagined as a movie on the big screen, thinking, oh, how could they do this? How could they do this? Great. These days, I said, it's when the dialogue used to be sort of like, you, know, you can say, oh, it's a bit cheesy for now. And then it, now it's, you know, objectively awful <laughs> but that's brilliant yeah. about it you know it works because like again going back to those sort of cult 80s films there are so many video nasty types and stuff like that where the dialogue is absolutely reprehensible but they do such daft things and then maybe some really cool stuff that you're like wow you wouldn't see that anywhere else you know because that's all they focused on and the cool stuff and then didn't worry about the script and it's all there and it's just it's endearingly awful in that regard. And that the story goes with that. I mean, some of the line delivery is just amazing. And I, <laughs> I say that in brackets. It's like, it's just like that whole, um, towards the end of um, the first of the game where Trish tries to sacrifice herself for Dante. He does the, I was supposed to be the one to fill your dark heart with light. And oh, like that. It's just like, Oh my god, it's brilliant! It, yeah. It's just and the throwaway what, going when you sort of loop back again and play the game for a second, third, whatever time, and going back to that initial exchange when you know that she's based on his mother, you know, and all that, and just the way he treats her and just this whole mis- misogynistic sort of oh yeah, you must need the toilet, go to the back sort of thing. It's like it, it just it's so daft and corny. I love every moment of it. For it's years, that weird advantage too of that that being that kind of Japanese Western hybrid, like that kind of yeah. weird, stilted, strange dialogue, just odd word choices that you never. You know, it's the thing you get out of mm. Resident Evil, out of Silent Hill, out of those. You know that Western Japanese kind of mix. Like you just you couldn't create that if you tried. You know, it's something you can only no. come to by accident. Yeah, it's a beautiful accident in that, in that regard. Uh, much like again, if you think of the dubbing of like uh, European horror movies uh, back in the day, it's like you get some very odd reactions because of the budget wouldn't really allow for someone to do anything but read what they had in front of them. 
uh, without seeing what they were reading. Uh, but uh, yeah, and it just became this wonderful thing for me in that regard. I loved every minute of it and still do. I, to this day, just flock off better face or stick around <laughs> and find out the hard way. It's a terrible <laughs> insult, but it's always stuck with me as just a really <laughs> great thing in that game. Just like, what was it when he says to the lava scorpion, it's like, I'm tired of playing the childish games. <laughs> it's like, there's no reference point to what childish game it is he's been playing, but it's like, uh, just constantly. What a big and, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you go to Devil May Cry 3, where he is younger and you know they've refined his humor and the writing a bit, and he's actually a bit snappier. And it's like, do you think he just got tired of dishing out these one-liners to the point where he's like, yeah, I'm just not going to put the effort in you know, when he gets older. And then he sort of circles all the way back to five where he's like, I kind of missed that. So I'm going to go back to being this cheesy as fuck dude, you know, with the snappy one-liners and the goofy behavior. And it, yeah, it, it almost unintentionally works as this perfect circle. You know, that he... He reclaims his dignity, if you will, by the time Five comes around. But I love too that, like by Devil May Cry Five, he's even uh, you know referencing some of his old lines, repeating some lines to the point that he does even mm. come off as that like that uncle who's told that one joke too many times. The kind of thing, mm. like which is so appropriate to where his character ended up. Yeah, it, he is effectively by that point the uncle mm. in the series. Uh, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean. Even with everything that happened with Two, he's forever been one of my favourite video game characters just because he is so... I think we were saying this with the Dead Rising episode the, the week about Frank West, how he's just this unapologetic arsehole. And this is very much Dante. You know, it's like he has a soft side, but he's also an absolute goofball. And as I said then, Capcom was so good at making these badass goofballs you know who aren't quite normal and you know Dante's like the cool side of the Frank West coin you know it's like he's a you know looks cool doing what he does wears the cool gear has the cool hair and all this stuff makes the one-liners and then Frank West is there he's the other side of that coin you know he's like very much the same but like a man you know (laughs) it's like an everyday guy and it's just brilliant time in Capcom's life where they could just throw characters out like that because games were at that point they were where you could kind of just sort of get away with having characters that shallow if you will and just you didn't have to have this great nuance and like uh, you know oh the reason I'm doing this is for my dead son or dead wife or whatever like that it's just like ah. it's like yeah I'm the demon my dad got killed that's not really the reason I'm doing any of this I just like killing things <laughs> well Frank West probably thinks that he looks like Dante to everybody else right that's the yeah. idea where it's like oh this is how I see myself almost but I think that that's what works so well with the game and I mean going off of the reputation of what I had heard and what I had kind of seen in clips and stuff like that um, I was expecting more of a sort of like in ed- as edgy as something could be in uh, 2001 this idea that it was just like trying to be edgy for edgy's sake but I was surprised to find that Devil May Cry is more just unapologetically goofy and then yeah. it backs that up with again this like Matt had said this really stellar gameplay that really makes or breaks the experience yeah. with things that kind of are um, very open about just like how goofy they are and oh we're not going to take this too seriously with our characters and the story and it being basically like the divine comedy light 
essentially. Yeah. But I just love that they're able to really never have to reel that silliness in, but the silliness never comes at the expense of the gameplay experience, right? No. And I was really, really surprised at just how well the gameplay holds up and how not only just in terms of, again, sort of like I said earlier, the uh, dedication to the kind of just layers of ranged and then close quarters combat, but just in general of how fluid a lot of it feels. Yeah. Um, there, are, of course, are a couple instances where enemies, especially like bosses, like the um, the griffin that you fight, it's off screen a majority of the time. And I just found that I was just like aiming up at the sky and shooting and the camera <laughs> never really had the griffin in, uh, in frame for a majority of those fights. But overall, I was really impressed with just how fluid a lot of the combat felt but also yeah. how it adapts to that dynamic camera angle that really gives the game a much more cinematic feel to it than I was expecting even during, uh, outside of obviously cinematics and whatnot. Or, or sorry, you, you used the word rhythm to describe it earlier, and I think that's so key to it because you really do get this kind of like, from that, that very first boss in Death May Cry, it's training you to not treat this like a typical video game. You, know, you don't have a shield, you don't even have a really mm-hmm. dedicated dodge button in the first Death May Cry. No. Yeah, which mm-hmm. that took some games to me. Uh, but what you get is this kind of sense of like you have to be aggressive like you have to be like in the enemy's face like hitting mm. them like being at like hitting them as hard as you can then you back off you taunt them you get some devil trigger mm. you can use that devil trigger to do whatever you need to do like to uh, either like cancel some frames you know, apply some more pressure recover some health like that's it's such a versatile system and it's there from the very beginning and it creates it creates this like great gameplay rhythm just like yeah, just rushing in, doing as much damage as you can, backing off for just a second, just basically to make fun of the enemy, and then go in and then hit him again. <laughs> yeah. It kind of had a Souls vibe for me. Um, not in terms is... of, like, the construct of the world or anything like that, but just in terms of, like you said, that rhythm of combat. And if you you obviously are always earning new um, moves and unlocks and different types of weapons and things like that, but if you ever really move away from that core rhythm you're going to be in for a rough time like I was early on. If you find yourself on the ropes, you're in trouble in these games. Right, exactly. And so if you ever kind of like lose the footing of that dance that you're engaged with, whether it's those smaller scale engagements or a boss, like you said, you're on the ropes and you it's hard to come back after that. But it gave a certain level of depth to a hack and slash that I wasn't familiar with. And it almost feels like a disservice just to call it a hack and slash, even though that is the core fundamental of the combat. At the same time, though, again, coming back to there is this depth and layer to it that if you want to seek that out, it just makes it that much more of a richer experience. And now in kind of like what you guys were saying in terms of the first time you play through, once you get the credits, it's like, okay, now the game is really beginning because you want to go back and remaster all those skills, harder difficulty, whatever. But I find that there's a lot of truth in that. And it made me, as soon as I finished it, I was like, Maybe I should go back and replay it actually on normal difficulty this time, but that remains to be seen if I'm uh, if I've mastered <laughs> what uh, was taught to me the first time around. I'm not mistaken; you'll even see some new enemies on the uh, difficulties. Mm. Like there's even additional content for. Uh, yeah. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. It, it's it was that's probably the, the thing that kept me coming back as well. Beyond the story, it was just the fact that you try it a bit harder each time, and you're like, oh, okay, this stuff's different. This stuff's new. Oh, and you. And you find these secret areas and the, you know the secret missions and stuff. I didn't discover any secret missions for like the first five playthroughs I did. It was like, and then I re- read somewhere that they were there. I'm like, what? <laughs> what have I been missing? It's like, and then you suddenly discover it's like this game is you know as you know deep as a Resident Evil in terms of exploration. You just don't see it because you're so focused on the action. Yeah, and the early going. 
and it's mad because so many modern takes on it have sort of done away with that now where it's very much focused on the action 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 maybe a little side pocket over here and that's it but yeah it's crazy how well it works and just to bring it back to what you were saying about the souls like nature it's like it was exactly why i thought bloodborne would be what i would love because it has everything I love about Devil May Cry in it. But I think straight away, two things, takes itself too seriously. And as much as you have to be more aggressive, it's not aggressive enough for me. You know, it's like you are punished for being overly aggressive, whereas I think Devil May Cry has a bit more fluidity to it. You know, Even in the earliest game, you can just really smash into the enemy and take them on with proper swagger because that's what you know Dante is that character and that's the games personified that yeah I think it's telling that with a Dark Souls game or, or with any Souls games if I am just barely able to beat a boss you know like I have one mm. HP left and then I just barely you know just jab that boss to death and then you know I win that's fine like that that's me as a victory like I'm really excited for doing that in, uh, in Souls if that happens to me it doesn't make cry I want to replay the boss it's like I didn't I didn't really yeah. win I didn't win in a cool way I just beat it yeah. doesn't count that's it yeah you don't want to just scratch by yeah it's like uh, I I think I just had that before we came on I, I was on Devil May Cry 3 and just faced the gigapede again <laughs> you know and it's like I'd forgotten how to beat that thing at first and I was like it's just sort of edged it out and then I sort of clicked at the end oh yeah you just jump on the back blah 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 like that and it's like uh, but it's just it just makes you sort of itch to go yeah, I could do that better I could get that better score and because it's tied to that whole arcade style scoring combo system and like that basically saying this is how shit you were at this you know you didn't you only got a B or a C and it's like in most games, it'd be like, oh, it's okay, I'll do. And it's like, in Devil May Cry, it just pushes you that further. It's like, if you'd just been a little more, you know, tried a little harder, maybe you could have got that S rank. Maybe you could have got that. And, you know, for me, generally, I don't give a shit about that. You know, when it comes to, like, Resident Evil, I didn't care about getting the S ranks on that and going through all the parameters for doing it. But because, especially in the first game, there's these, each stage is so pocket-sized you know it's like a few minutes at a time 10 minutes tops most times and you can basically run through that and perfect it if you really wanted to like that and that's a good mix of that sort of arcade feel you know where you are just like for even though it's all connected with a story and you have to do certain stuff it's cool that you can just sort of jump into these places and try again try another mm. go and see if you could do that a little bit better get that score high and yeah that to me was this great throwback to the sort of games I grew up with you know and I wanted to get the high score again and, and but with this sort of modern sensibility where it's all tied in with a story and you have to look cool doing it and it's just it's amazing how well that connected well, they include that in a way that doesn't feel like it's tacked on, right? Cause, mm. And this is me kind of jumping into my uh, my mini rant about Resident Evil 4 now and the connection between that and Devil May Cry is that, like, thinking about, like, mercenaries mode or something like that, where it's all, obviously, uh, try to kill as many people as possible and survive as long as you can and yeah. whatnot. As much as I enjoy that mode, it feels tacked on, right? And it's always like, well, this could always use a little more polish or there could even be more features or something to that extent. But... 
With Devil May Cry, it folds that arcade sensibility into the main narrative and the parameters of the single player mode, right? Or just the, I guess, campaign, uh, if you will. But that gives the entire experience, again, this sort of fluidity, not just in the combat, but in terms of the style, the sensibilities, and the sort of merging of various genres that I really was taken with uh, in a way I wasn't expecting. And I was even a little taken aback initially at the idea that you're breaking up these sections into chapters, right? I was like, huh, this Mm. is weird. And then I was like, wait a minute, Resident Evil 4 did that. Because that was Mm. the one thing where I was like, that was very strange the first time I played Resident Evil 4 because it was like, wait a sec, it's not one continuous area or there's like these breaks and then you can save and then it kind of it gives you a definitive stopping point because I don't know mm. about you guys. Sometimes I need those when I'm really pl- enjoying a game. I'm like, yeah. I need this definitive, like, let's put this down, go do something else and then come back. Um, and so I wasn't expecting that with Devil May Cry. But at the same time, at least based on my first few hours playing on normal, it was uh, just what I needed because it was something mm. that I guess I had always wanted from like uh, Bloodborne or something. The opportunity to take a break from these uh, high stress, challenging engagements and whatnot Um, And I really appreciated that. But then the more I looked into it, I learned that Devil May Cry actually was originally conceived as being um, the next Resident Evil, right? Back in the day, which I was thinking that while I was playing it, I was like, there's a lot of similarities. The castle setting, even some of the music. Neil, I messaged you and I was like, is there music that was reused for Resident Evil 4? And some of them had been uh, tweaked and whatnot for the save music and everything. But it was remarkable and maybe it's why I got on so well with the overall setting, which is a little generic. Like you're in a castle, the gothic castle architecture, there's demons and stuff. But I really appreciated and finding all these sort of like little similarities. Like there's that prolonged sewer section that has those kind of like mosquito enemies that fly around, which are yeah. in RE4 and all these things. But it it was just very cool to see a Resident Evil sensibility adapted into a hack and slash action game from the early 2000s. And while that would never work in terms of like this style of gameplay for Resident Evil. I really obviously have always enjoyed the Resident Evil aesthetic and mood and vibe of it. And to see that in a game that has a different style of gameplay just mm. made me click with Res- with uh, Devil May Cry in a way that I was not expecting kind of almost from the jump. I would even argue that some of those Resident Evil elements are more at home in Devil May Cry than they are in Resident Evil. Mm. Like, yeah, about, yeah, um, absolutely. Resident Evil starts to make more sense to me as much as I love, especially the RE1 remake. I think it's just a, a perfect game. The uh, you know the puzzle mansion, it, it all feels like you're having to uh, stretch you know credulity quite a bit to to accept it. Mm. Whereas in Definitely mm. Cry, when you have you know demons and myth and everything, you come to this castle where like you have all these descriptions about. I don't know if you guys were, were like looking at like item descriptions or um, you know environmental descriptions and stuff, but they talk about there's just something wrong with this castle. People go insane at night. Uh, time moves differently in different places. Like it, it gives this real sense of unease, and it just felt so at home for you know what Dante was, and and also just kind of helps emphasize how cool Dante is for not really being intimidated by any of this. Yeah. And, and to me, Resident Evil kind of takes form more when it hits like two and three, when you know the puzzles are more like getting a crank or getting a fuel source. You know, they're, they're kind of mundane things that you use to solve the environment. Whereas in Death May Cry, it's like, here's an electrical trident that I'm going to stick into this corner. <laughs> I, I don't know why it, it works. Here is, a, here is a philosopher's stone. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, like, it's just a problem. <laughs> That's what's so great about Dante is that he does not have that sort of stranger in a strange land 
that all of the Resident Evil protagonists have in the early games, right? This idea yeah. they're dropped into these very sort of, they're basically these very like mythical places that feel like they're steeped in something and you're kind of the everyman, you're a cop or whatever. But Dante, he's this supernatural being or superhuman and yeah, he's right at home. So like you said, why wouldn't he use an electrical trident as a lever or something like that? Right, the, the sort of, yeah, exactly. And like like Neil has been saying, the sort of like naffness of certain elements, they feel right at home. So they can be unapologetic because it all just meshes so well together to the core of that DMC identity. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess in terms of like bosses, are there any elements of the way that the bosses are constructed that you feel really stood out to you even at the time that you played it for the first time and all these years later? How do you find that the game, obviously you guys still love the game and it's sort of like one of your your core video game experiences that really still resonates with you, but what is an element of it that you're surprised has really held up as well as it has all these years? Uh, Definitely the dynamism of the bosses. So like, Mm. I would think about something like, you know, I I love Zelda games, for example, but a Zelda boss really only has the two states, right? It has, Mm. it's doing its own thing and then there's a state when you solve the puzzle, right? You know, you throw the bomb at the red thing and then you've solved it. And then you just have to keep doing that on repeat. And with Death May Cry, it's like, you have, the the first state of the boss is kind of what we're talking about, like you on the ropes, you know, the boss is intimidating you, you're just trying to figure out different moves. But when you start pushing them back, it's almost like they enter a completely different state. Like I was thinking about the, uh, the the Giga Beat, I think is what it's called. Uh, yeah, Yeah, you're talking about and I was thinking, um, there's a boss a little bit after that called uh, Agni and Rudra, which are these, it basically duel with these yeah. two characters. And I remember having so much trouble with that fight as a kid, like just trying to, you know, keep track of these two enemies and, and be able to dodge them and everything. And I find in replays after kind of figuring out the system, you can get right between those two, get them to hit each other. You can parry their attacks, yeah. you can drop their swords. They, like you can just trivialize them. Like you can just mm-hmm. wipe the floor with them. And the fact that the game is built around like allowing you to do that is my favorite thing about bosses in these games. Yeah, that's it. I, I mean, that and the flair for melodrama, which, you know, as we said, permeates through the thing. The whole um, Dante and Nero thing, you know, who turns out to be Virgil, uh, has always been like a favorite thing of mine in the, in the original game because, you know, Back then, I thought it was quite subtle, you know, like, oh, it's like, who's this mystery man? And until the last second, always with the locket thing, it's like, it was very bloody obvious looking back now. That it, you know, it a, but maybe that's just because there's been several games now where it's like, this is Virgil, this is Virgil, he, he, his brother, that's it. But yeah, it's just awesome when you have those little fights. The, the, the Nero fights in Devil Cry are just amazing fun you know it's because it's like yeah though you had those mirror fights with those weird electric bats where they turn into versions of dante the fights with nero really do feel like you're fighting your mirror you know like and sure that's like a well-worn trope in video games you know in terms of boss fights but there it was like you know this is like you this is what you could be if you weren't just so happy or lucky and don't give a shit about all this stuff and you were super serious about being a demon and taking over the world and all that and I've always liked that sort of thing between those two you know whatever version of those characters has existed over time in between these games uh, even in the Ninja Fury reboot there's always been this sort of difference where Dante is always the one with the swagger and the 
the don't give a shit attitude and then Virgil's very like studious and serious and wants everything to be you know, he he's in he's a master of the blade if you will that sort of character you know he's he is anime guy in, in the serious sense yeah I, I love it Virgil is uh is what Dante could be if Dante took things more seriously but also if mm. Dante lacked the humanity that ultimately is what redeems every single game you know there's this mm. beautiful uh connection between Dante and Virgil that that really is the line of the entire series for me and it's a big part of why uh DMC5 was so satisfying to me like I thought they just yeah. wrapped it up perfectly and put a bow on it like I couldn't think of a better way to end yeah yeah absolutely Matt now as a concept artist I'm curious what are some of the like creature designs or boss designs that really stand out to you um, whether they be in their complexity or just in terms of their literal aesthetic and kind of finding a home in this uh, this very gothic and demonic world man I uh, I have a ton of respect for what they are able to come up with in terms of enemies because like you gotta think about how many levels they're operating on right like it's the same idea of a fighting game. Like, you, you make a character that has these cool-looking moves that, first off, have to look cool, but they also have to be yeah. readable. You have to be able to recognize, this is going to be an anti-air attack, this is going to be a low attack, whatever. You have to be able to uh, react to it. So, every single Devil May Cry game has pretty much a brand new set of enemies with some callbacks to some old ones. And they all have that ability to communicate what they're about to do. You know, you see an enemy rear up, and it's about to come and hit you, so it has this you know, great silhouette design. But then, especially as the fidelity increases up to, you know, DMC5, they have these incredible, just, like, weird little textures and stuff, too. Like, uh, I was recently looking at the art book for DMC5 and noticing that some of those insect enemies that I just thought it was being big, you know, kind of bugs on the outside, if you look up close, they're made of, like, contorted human bodies and all these little, like, small, subtle details, too. Like, it's, uh, there's so much that goes into designing even just one of those things that it blows my mind. Um... But, but I think as far as the high point goes in uh, Devil May Cry 1, I really like, uh, I believe it's called Shadow. You know, the kind of liquid venom uh, panther thing that you fight. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. also Nightmare. Like, Nightmare's yeah. the whole concept behind Nightmare, uh, as frustrating a boss as that can be, is, uh, is unforgettable to me. Yeah. It's like, it was always, still to this day, it's the boss I dread. Yeah. You know, because it, it feels like a, a challenge because it has so many different things you have to do to it. And yeah, sure, you know, once you figure out its you know foibles and you know harden it to make it easier to hit, it's not such a problem, but it's just yeah, it it lives up to its name, if you will, you know, compared to the other boss fights. You know, going to what Jay was saying about, you know, facing Phantom, the, you know, the giant lava scorpion, it did at first feel like a real daunting enemy to face but it's like once you get for a few playthroughs it's like yep you're my bitch i'm taking you on that's (laughs) it like and it's just like you you're almost swatting him away at that point and same with griffin i just talking of design i love the design on the griffin oh yeah you know this whole sort of multi heads together sort of bird face is just it looks like roadkill, but <laughs> doesn't. Yeah, it's like like several birds got smushed together at once, you know. And that's perfect for the kind of thing it is. It looks threadbare and shabby, but also majestic in, yeah. in that sort of godly way that it does. It's like, it, yeah, really, really well designed. I have to say, but you know, for that era of gaming, you know, at birds not always easy to sort of get right, and it really did look amazing to me you know as much as it is cool that you have a lava scorpion and that that's great 
I, I just think, yeah, that, that's that. Even the demon design, you know, of Dante and Nero, you know, this, this whole other self that they are is really unusual, you know, for what you would consider a cool demon design. You know, it's like, it fits into that sort of gothic sort of style that the games have, you know, and then you go to Mundus, you know, which, uh, you know, the whole statue form he has is just like where it is like this idealized version of himself if you will and i love that i love that idea that you know he sees himself as an adonis if you will like this big statuesque figure you know and mighty in that way where he is just basically sauron you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> otherwise you know it, it's amazing and i think they sort of play on that quite well in uh, the reboot where he is just like this every man bold fucker the, the you know the sort of guy you'd see down the pub and be a bit wary of uh, like that but he also has this belief and this ego that you could he very much believes he's this powerful entity where you know in his case he is like that and it i like that sort of shift in realism if you will to to that character it's like he's still very much the same arrogant fucker that he is in the original devil may cry but he's much more believable grounded version of it and i thought that was a very smart take on it yeah i almost this is definitely worth camping out on for a second because you really uh, if i'm not mistaken for the whole game leading up to the end you don't even see what he looks like right you just kind of see these glowing red eyes uh, in the distance yeah. and then you mm-hmm. reach him you've gone through you know the castle's getting darker and darker the the dimensions are starting to merge you're eventually in this kind of like you're inside like living walls and everything like it's yeah. grosser and then all of a sudden you're in just this beautiful white cathedral talking to this divine looking statue and that's the you know that's the most dangerous thing in the entire game like it, it, i love that idea that like yeah like you just would absolutely want people to worship him like that's how eric yeah i think mean, you kind of see his true yeah. form at the end and he's just this resident evil you know mash of flesh and limbs and stuff yeah the Capcom standard, if you will. <laughs> I love how everything has a little creative flair to it, right? Nothing is really this sort of just stock standard. And again, maybe that's my uh, impression of like a lot of early 2000s games, but I was expecting a lot of just like stock standard demons, stock standard uh, mutant insects type things. But everything has a sort of creative flair to it. Like, of course, you fight the tarantula phantom, but then he's got lava and stuff like that. Or you're fighting um, these like lizard creatures, but they're wearing this like gladiator armor. Yeah. Everything yeah. is just weird enough. But again, like the world is so naft in all of its different sensibilities that it all works in a way, even if they mm. there isn't really a line sometimes that you can connect these different things to. It all just works because you're like, well, yeah, this is this demonic hellscape essentially. But everything, nothing felt like, again, just like you were copying and pasting it from any other sort of similar game in a similar vein that was released in that period or even previous to it. Um, and especially like the most basic enemies, which I wouldn't even call them fodder because again, it speaks to the rhythm of the combat system where you really can't yeah. treat anything like it's a throwaway. Cause then you'll just fuck up your current run and have to restart the beginning of that zone, uh, which are the sort of like demonic jesters that come down and you can see their yeah. little strings and then they disappear and then they're throwing blades at you or they have like a variety to them. That was another thing that I was really impressed with is that, especially when you're fighting a group of enemies and it's typically there's not really a mixture of enemies. It's usually you're fighting one type in this one section. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not sort of just 
copying and pasting their moves per enemy, right? There's generally speaking, I found that they're utilizing different combat for each of the version that you're fighting, which again, if it was sort of just, okay, these are all the melee guys. They're all going to try to use the same melee attack. You'd probably just blow right through that encounter, but you kind of can't treat anything like it's a throwaway uh, moment. Because then, you again, like I said, you end up uh, letting the game get the best of you, as it were. Yeah. But uh, it's something that I think it adds a lot of depth to at least my entire experience with the game. Because, again, I didn't feel like any certain section was fodder, which is something that I attribute to a lot of hack and slash games, right? It's kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, does this game need to be this long? Or are there certain sections where it's like, I'm just doing the same thing over and over and over. But Devil May Cry presents each room and each section as its own sort of combat puzzle that if you're not sort of adapting to it, then you're going to have a real short run. I was going to say, um, one of the, the biggest appeals to me of these games from uh, Devil May Cry, from after Devil May Cry 1 are the Bloody Palace modes. Like, that's, that ends up being rest mm-hmm. of a lot of my time, which is kind of a wave mode where every four is one of those. It's one of those combat puzzles. And I think it, it speaks to the quality of those designs that every single four, you know, you see... A different set of enemies and you switch to a different weapon kit you switch to a different uh fighting style to handle each different kind of situation because everything calls for a different strategy so yeah i think that's a it's just fantastic design across the board yeah it's uh always just amazing how well they sort of adapted it over time and had the great alternate modes to fight and you know even as i said even going into the ninja theories version which i feel is actually one of the best examples of, of sort of being able to switch combat styles, you know, and I love the combat styles in that game. And considering how, you know, new that whole thing was with the original Death May Cry and how, you know, if you compare it to later games, it is quite a- ancient in a way because it's very simple. But that plays in its favor because it still knows its limitations it knows its confines it is not some game trying to copy something else it is trying to be its game you can see everything in that original game you then see you know obviously in what uh, platinum games ended up being with the likes of bayonetta and whatever it is that same sort of mantra of like how can we make something that is relatively simple that everyone else does into something that's really stylish and over the top and absurd? And you saw it with Bayonetta, you saw it with Vanquish, you know, it's like those, it's amazing how many times they pulled that off. I mean, in later years, they didn't pull it off so well all the time, but yeah, they did it. And they had a hand in Nero Automata, you know, in terms of the combat stuff like that, they probably, you know, made that game better, all the better for it, you know, because they had that sort of, variety of combat that we got so used to from that team um, being implemented into this very, you know, thoughtful, you know, intricate game, you know, it, it, which is, to be honest, probably the first time because <laughs> up to that point, you know, that combat had always been associated with these sort of very uh, blunt-edged, you know, kind of games that very much like... Yeah, we're, we're not ones for subtlety here. It's like, here is the you know, demon hunter that can get stabbed by big swords and fights giant demons like it doesn't matter. Here's a witch that literally her costume is made of her own hair and she can use it and she fights God at the end. And, you know, it's like, to, to then go to sort of do near Automata, as weird as that game can be, it feels quite normal, 
you know, for Platinum to sort of to jump in on it, it helping Yokotaro with. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's that's been my favorite part about that legacy that Devil May has always had is that it has Platinum Games became a thing. We had all the games that came out of that that really did feel like they took everything that made that special and pushed it into new games and then made them icons and made them cult favorites. You know, it's, you think of, like I said, Bayonetta, you think of Akami and stuff like that. They're all descendants of that original Devil May Cry style. And it's amazing to think that none of it would have happened had Hideki Kamiya not sort of pushed to have this sort of reject version of Resident Evil 4 <laughs> become this whole new game and be this be this like and believe in it enough to go, no, 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 we can make something out of this. You know, we could do something special. Yeah. You know, it's right? that, you know, it's uh, like, that legacy of gameplay that came from both of those things, like Resident Evil 4 pretty much led to the uh, you know the third person shooter craze that became really kind of the mm. default video game for a lot of uh, you know, for a lot of franchises for a while. And in my opinion, yeah. that genre or that kind of style of gameplay dried up pretty quickly. You know, I think Resident Evil 4 was almost, mm. you could argue that might have been one of the peaks and then all of a sudden no one ever really kind of reached those heights. Whereas Devil May Cry, it feels like they put something out there that wasn't, that was this beautiful idea, this really interesting diversion point that wasn't quite figured out, but was so like, yeah. was so like close to complete in the beginning. And it has just yeah. dead since then. Like like before 2019, um, you know, when Devil May Cry 5 came out, my feelings about Devil May Cry were mostly like, this is just, this is such a great legacy series because look at what's come out of this. Look at Metal Gear Rising, look at Bayonetta, look at Automata, look at how much we're benefiting from it. Forgot about Metal Gear Rising then. I mean, Christ. Uh, like, that pretty much, uh, that's like the peanut butter and jelly, if you will, of, of things I love. You know, it's like, it just <laughs> smushed together Metal Gear Solid and Devil May Cry. Oh, yeah. And, and I just made. That was <laughs> just and again another game that was really contentious, you know, because it's like oh sacrilege, sacrilege sort of thing, like uh, DMC was, and yet it's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it it to me to this day feels like the best version of Devil May Cry that isn't Devil May Cry. You know, it it really got everything about that. The the whole, you know, slice and dice mode that it has, you know, where you can just literally just chop things to pieces feels like a proper Kojima gimmick yeah. in yeah. that sort of genre. Mm-hmm. And in that, it makes it perfect. And mm-hmm. it really does feel like a game that has a hand from Kamiya and Kojima, mm-hmm. you know, in it. And it, it's unbelievable how well that worked out, you know, I could understand the skeptics on that. Mostly people who hate Raiden to begin with. I'm not one of them. Um, and yeah, so it was just, just fan bloody tested. And as much as I love Bayonetta, in particular Bayonetta 2, like yeah. those games never quite have, some, there's something about the, the tuning, like they never quite have the weight that Devil May Cry has to me. Where, mm. you know, Bayonetta, like, if I, I might press four buttons and I might see Bayonetta do 16 different things on screen and they're all going to feel fairly similar to each other except for maybe that like last yeah. move she throws in the combo and it, it's great it, it looks wonderful there's so much you know interesting so many interesting ideas in the Bayonetta games but Rising I agree like Rising had that feeling of of being close to Devil May Cry and that like 
when I press this button in this direction, I know what that's going to feel like. I know how much weight, how much momentum is going to be behind that. I know what that's going to do to the enemy and how they're going to react to it. Yeah. It just had, it was just so carefully considered. It was just like, you could, yeah. you could imagine how this fight was going to go and then imagine exactly what you were going to do in the fight. Yeah. I mean, you had these moments where you'd repeat things over and over again, but it was still, you'd want to because... Mm-hmm they look really cool like the whole thing where he just sort of pulls the spines out of these cyborgs and, and squashes them you know, to finish a move off it's just you could just don't tire of it you know like that. and I think Bayonetta's problem was it was too knowing you know anyway it was too in on the joke that it was absurd and all like that it, it, unlike Devil Cry which always yeah. has felt like this apologetic, it's never been apologetic about what it is. It's just like, yeah, we'll do whatever. You don't gel with what we like, fuck you, sort of thing. Yeah. It, it, and, you know, like you said, Bennett and his people are very good and do some really cool things. But they are like, they're the scream to the, the 80s slasher that is Devil May Cry, if you will. You know, it's like, it's yeah. too meta, it's too knowing, it's too, you know, it's like, it's nice as a diversion from what that is but it isn't it doesn't have that special something it, and it can't and I get why it had to be what it was but then Rising kind of goes and proves that you can do that but then Rising is taking on something that already is so wonderfully absurd and convoluted in Kojima's whole world of Metal Gear you know up to that point you know you are jumping off from Metal Gear Solid 4 which is just like fucking bonkers at that point you know with so much stuff that you'd be like what did this if you hadn't played any of the previous games you'd have been lost most of the time and so it worked it was a perfect marriage because it was that cocky absurdism from Kamiya's sort of platinum game stuff mixed in with Kojima's just bizarro you know nonsense whilst also throwing in like hey we're harvesting children to make super soldiers like that and just being like the mentioning it as part of the storyline without ever sort of pushing it as being like this big political point because that is very Kojima. Yeah, yeah, with, with like Bayonetta you have, this, you have this kind of question of like, this is really big and elaborate but are they kind of making fun of this or are they are they taking it seriously? You never quite know. Hmm. Whereas if it's Kojima, you know he meant it, whether it's stupid or not. Like, hmm. Kojima 100% is sincere about Yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's it. he's brilliant at being sincere and stupid yeah, at the same time. <laughs> it's like that. He, I've never seen anyone address the horrors of war and also ensure that a man is shitting himself constantly, uh, you know, being an in joke, and make it work. You know, it's like in the same game. You know, it's it, it's remarkable. And like I said, he just suits that. Devil May Cry style a lot more than say Bayonetta does where it is this like I said the Scream sort of style meta take on the stuff that they'd already done it's just fine you know like I said all can exist we seem to become we seem to come full circle on that kind of game too because I, I know earlier in the conversation we were talking about how Dante almost seemed like something that couldn't be done or could only be done in that early kind of Capcom space right like that early 2000s where yeah. you were allowed to be you know, over the top and silly and crazy. And there's this kind of weird point that video games got to in the, I don't know, maybe late 2000s, the 2010s, where it's almost like they became more cinematic and became embarrassed in games. And yeah. very serious, everything was very apologetic, everything became 
very, you know, it's, it's like we have to, we can't just have a game that's fun. We have to give you a reason to play it beyond mm. the game. And the fact that we're back with Death May Cry 5 to the original feel of Death May Cry, like that original, just, just the same, like you can never predict what's going to happen next, but it's totally sincere, is uh, to me one of the, the best success stories of modern gaming. And you're kind of seeing yeah. Resident Evil as well, like really anything coming out of Capcom right now seems worth paying attention to, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, because they have done exactly, you know, they've seen the light and seen that, hey, what made us money? What made us popular? Oh, it was this stuff, and they're doing it again with a slightly modern machine. Uh, you know, and as we argued a couple of weeks ago, it's like that's why Dev Rising should get another shot because it's you know, if it if it can work for Devil May Cry and Resident Evil, it can totally work for that. And I kind of hope Devil May Cry will probably get another sort of crack of the whip now that Five was successful, you know, and did well. And they've still got to sort of have that compromise where it's like they could make it look beautiful and like that when the PS5 version was like with the ray tracing and all that, it, you know, amazing, great, like that, because that's fine in a game like that in a way because it feels... <laughs> we were talking about how meta stuff maybe isn't great for this sort of genre, but that's because Bayonetta did it in a very unsubtle way. I think... The subtlest thing Devil May Cry 5 does is it's very much the modern reboot that uh, you'd expect, you know, that the DMC maybe wasn't, in that it hits, it, you know, we're doing movie ref- references again here, but like The Force Awakens, yeah, it hitting the, all the old notes, but in a new way, you know, in a new manner with more modern sensibilities. And it works because you're reminding people of what they loved about this in the first place. I would never have assumed that um, this kind of like level of fidelity would have helped up in the cry. Like at any point in the past, I never would have thought that it would have been important. But seeing just how character focused a plot of the cry five was, and being able to actually read subtle emotional cues on the basis of these basically photorealistic looking characters adds so much to it. Like there's a little. One of the final things you see in Devil May Cry 5 is just this little, like, this tiny smile between uh, Dante and Virgil. Like, and that's all you need. Like, you don't need this big cheesy line, this big cheesy show about it. Like, just that alone tells me everything I need to know about the relationship between these two characters. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is just... You know, like I said, we've, we've gone on about how DMC is this great reboot in terms of... I think we were saying before the show, it's like the Platinum Dunes reboot of Devil May Cry as a series in terms of it's the grimier, meaner sort of take on the original, not without humour, but you know, generally taking it with a more stony-faced look. Devil May Cry 5 is like the other, it's like, well, we didn't, that reboot failed unnecessarily. Here's what fans wanted. You know, and this is the, the snazzy new version of what you loved in the first place. Brilliant, great, it all works. And yeah, with modern technology, as you say, you can do things you couldn't do back then. And, you know, what, what would you call it? It's like, if definitely Cry, the original, again, going back to references, has that sort of scuzzy 80s vibe and you're trying to replicate it in the modern era, the closest thing you sort of get to that in terms of budget, 
and cheesiness is like a sci-fi film, you know, a sci-fi channel film, you know, where you, you are still embracing that naffness, but you're trying to bring a little bit of credibility to it on the cheap. I mean, as much as it looks good, you have to agree that uh, Devil May Cry benefited from Resident Evil 7's sort of, you know, with the engine stuff, and it reuses a lot of assets, and, like, they were able to sort of make it a lot cheaper, a lot a lot less risk than they would have done, but still evoke what people loved about that game. And it was brilliant in that regard that you have that and you could do that well. And I think this has been Capcom's thing that they've managed to keep evolving old games on the cheap because they know the, the basics and they don't have to have the original teams involved or anything like that because they want the modern sort of style of that thing they once had. And yeah, it works out well, you know, because everyone's idea, generally speaking, you know, beyond people who are hardcore fans and have been, have still played stuff like the original Devil May Cry, you know, they have a vague idea of what that kind of game should be like. And Devil May Cry 5 is brilliant for that reason alone, for it, it introduces new players or players who hadn't played for years back to the series in a way that makes sense and for old school fans it has everything you would want with compromises you know uh, and yeah, because if once you really delve into Devil May Cry 5 it is very different in a lot of ways to and doesn't quite hold the same charms as the original Devil May Cry but it does enough in a way that Devil May Cry 4 didn't do, or DMC didn't do, or DMC 2, you know, Devil May Cry 2 didn't do, that it's the closest it's felt, you know, in many years, you know, in more than a de- you know, yeah. 15 years at that point, to really getting what the series was about. And so, as a result, like I said about before, Capcom keeps getting this right. Best of both worlds, everybody's happy, Capcom win again. Mm-hmm. Somehow they're they're on a tear. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I'm missing at this point from uh, Doesn't Make Cry or Doesn't Make Cry Five is just that uh, you're going back to one and having that big creepy castle that had its own story, like mm. having this environment that I really was able to kind of connect with and see like interesting stuff in it. Because you know Doesn't Make Cry Five has yeah. beautiful environments, but I don't care about any of them. You know, it's it's just it's rubble, yeah. destruction, it's streets, it's you know it's whatever. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I guess that's not quite fair like when you start getting into the more surreal things at the end they do some some quite interesting things with textures but uh it didn't have a sense of identity like that you know that island at the beginning of yeah i mean that to me has been a problem with uh all the sequels uh, bar the reboot is that though they have gone further afield they've not had quite a different identity you know they've not really connected in the same way like Devil May Cry 2's big problem if you're coming to it from having played the original first uh, is that it feels very bland and very ordinary and very after I, I'm, I'm sure I know you began with 2 and you know I can totally understand that if you begin with 2 it would be fine and it would work well and you might anyway enjoy it but when you come from everything that happens with one and all these different chops and changes and these, you know, a few minutes apiece, the other way you're going, oh, you're doing this. Now you're here. Now you're in a mirror universe. Now you're in hell. And it's just, 
you go to two and it's like go here again go here again go here again go here again and it's like i just couldn't you know it was awful for me at that time because it was like there were two sequels for the first time in my life you know sequels to things i loved really didn't click with me and those things were mission impossible 2 you know where i thought like john <laughs> woo yeah it was like john woo do, you know i love john woo doing mission impossible and i love that first film by brian tamala and i love that limp biscuit song <laughs> oh man that's a guilty pleasure that song yeah. i mean like i said it ties into this whole devil pride thing mm-hmm. and yet it yeah as a film shit didn't work hate it do gray scott should just never act again and <laughs> awful and definitely cry too was that you know a few years later it was like it was disappointing i mean it tied into a point in a summer where i had a very disappointing summer but it was just <laughs> that was like the benchmark for that summer it felt like it was like i should have known playing that game that everything was going to be crap for a bit because it just it really did set the tone for that that period of the year and it was it was horrible to feel like that about a sequel to a game i think you know um jack and daxter to jack and daxter 2 jack 2 was similar because it went to this but because it went to something i liked which was like open world gta style game i wasn't quite so downhearted about it whereas Devil May Cry 2, it just felt so lacking in soul, you know, compared to the original. It just felt like it was the earliest example for me of a game getting to, you know, sniffing its own farts, if you will. You know, it was there going, oh, yeah, we're so great. We're so great. Let's get commercial deals. Let's do a deal with Diesel so we can get our characters togged up in great gear. And the whole repeating stuff was, you know, which isn't, you know, no no crime here, but the original game did that to a degree. Devil May Cry 2 repeated stuff so much that it was just like, nah, you had an idea for half the game and then you forgot what you were doing. And I understand, you know, they lost the people that really made the original game tick. And that created this thing that wasn't quite as good. And it, it really soured me on free. I didn't touch free for many years because it really, really stung me how bad two was after one. Because, like I said, we've discussed at length here. I so adored the original game, and it was such a formative game that it, it destroyed me. It, I mean, this is very similar with like Metal Solid Three to two. I loved 2 so much that going back in time to 3 kind of felt disappointing at first because it's not the story I wanted. I wanted to know what was going on with the Patriots. I, mm. I wanted to know what, where that story was going. And it's like, I didn't want to go back in time. Now, 3 is like the second best game in the series, maybe. Maybe third, because 5, brilliant. That's pretty good. Sure, I'll talk, I'll talk about that at <laughs> another point. But, <laughs> but you know... It was like, with Devil May Cry 2, you know, I'm giving it chances, and yeah, it's still to this day just, it's, I've never been so derailed from a franchise for so long by a game like that. And I said, I said about 3 being like a game I couldn't touch for, even 4, I was left numb by it because of the impact of 2. It was the years later when 
I think the PS3 sort of collection came out and I got to really play Devil May Cry again and I sort of gave three a chance and, and I really enjoyed that and then I gave four a chance again and I really enjoyed that and then five like you said it, it, it became like the perfect sort of footnote for this sort of part of the series you know it, it feels like a good jumping off point for it to take a new way you know and maybe that's why I like DMC so much because it felt like someone scrubbing it all this horrible th- stuff out of my memory and starting anew with something and they did really well and I wasn't as connected as the people that were like in adoration of three and four at that point so it, it felt like a perfect thing for me I'll say as somebody that just came to the series for the first time and played one and then came to two and played that right afterwards and didn't finish it, but I played the first two or three hours. There's just from those first opening hours I played of it. There's such a lack of identity that I found that is, that is so pivotal to my enjoyment of one, right? This idea that sure, the scale of the engagements, the amount of enemies on screen is growing, in Devil May Cry 2, but it just is a bunch of, like, my memory is just a bunch of dirty streets or run-down streets, apocalyptic-type streets, and you're fighting the same skeleton enemies over and over, and then all of a sudden there's a tank with an eye and then a helicopter with a fleshy (laughs) eye or something. Like, these really random encounters that, while those might be sort of just aesthetic differences that I didn't like, I even found that it seemed that in that growing of scale and the fact that they wanted to make this world seem like it's much larger than it used to be um the combat really took a hit in that regard and that especially i'm thinking in terms of the first sort of i guess mini boss encounter which is the um possessed tanks or demonic tanks that you're fighting where yeah they look intimidating but then if you stand right next to them it can't hit you with its flamethrower attack or its tank shell attack so i just stand there just bashing the, the triangle button for a sword or shotgun or whatever. And then I'm just sitting there doing that for like 45, 60 seconds because it's got this two or three tiered health bar. And that was the other thing that I, I maybe I forget, but in um, Devil May Cry, did they have multiple tiers of health bars or no? No, uh, no, it was just standard. I think it was just the one, but that was an element of two that I found really labels that one more of a hack and slash, which I find it to be much more monotonous in terms of combat, right? In that the combat styles in one felt like there was a lot more variety and there was that rhythm and dance that we kind of were talking about. Whereas in two, it was just, they were the equivalent of bullet sponge enemies, right? They just, they get three tiers of health bars where they lose all sense of combat identity because it's just like, okay, some enemies, they can't even hit me with, they've got such flaws in terms of their range or their combat animations. But then other enemies, it was like, okay, I'm just going to look out for the ranged attack. It was kind of like what Matt was saying about uh, Zelda, right? They have these very obvious tells in terms of the sort of flow to combat. And yeah. Devil May Cry 2, it was like, okay, I'm fighting this gigantic monkey. And it's like, okay, he's going to jump on the ceiling and then he's going to come down and swing. And it's just these very sort of simplistic animations and combat styles that when you pair that with a three-tiered health bar or something that effect, it just becomes this very monotonous experience that doesn't stand out from a lot of the other types of games from that era or even that genre in general in a way that 
I played the first three hours and I was like, yeah, I can see why Neil told me not to play this one or not to bother <laughs> with this at all. Because I was like, the idea that I was going to stick with that for the amount of time that I spent with one, I just couldn't see in those three hours them evolving on this concept at all. And yeah. it's such a clear cut case of a lot of sequels that I think I found that have been disappointing in that they have a lot of success early on. And then they're like, okay, we need to make this bigger, right? It's kind of yeah. the the typical pitfalls of sequels, right? They have yeah. more money, more, bigger budget. They want to get bigger and bigger and outdo the original, but at the cost of what made the original so fundamental and all of those sort of sensibilities and the beauty in that small scale, right? I mean, yeah. in the small scale, there are these little details you pick up on all these things, both aesthetically and uh, gameplay-wise. Yeah, it's like a thing with game sequels at that time where compared to movie sequels, you're almost guaranteed to be better the second time around, or maybe even third time around. It's like you could make a surefire hit, a critical success, because you'd have better technology to make that the next game. And so it was rare that a sequel was bad, you know, or, or didn't. But here it came because the people that really made Devil May Cry what it was weren't there for the sequel and you know Devil May Cry itself being this happy accident that, you know, uh, uh, anyway meant the second game was the first time they were really sort of like well now we're going to make a game for real you know now we're doing it from the ground up and they took the wrong things you know and all the worst sequels in anything are the ones that take the wrong thing from the original and don't understand what made it special. Yeah. And while that can work, and you know, people will disagree. I go back to the Matrix, Matrix Reloaded here uh, as a thing where people may disagree that Reloaded is not what people wanted from a sequel to the Matrix. It's like, well, what do you expect? You know, it's like he's already God. And it's like how can you now evolve that story? You you make the stakes higher and you give other characters more leeway to have peril and danger. Devon Cry didn't do that, you know, for instance. It, it was just Dante, you know, more jaded, if you will. You know, it's like, but so jaded that he didn't care for jokes, didn't care to be a stylish and attacking and flair-based in what he did and as such you lose the point uh, of what Dante yeah. is and uh, as a character yeah yeah Jace, the, the point that you made I, about the um, the way you just kind of like go up to like a tank and just kind of mash attack on it and you're just triangle 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 I feel like what they were uh, what they were misunderstanding was they put a lot of work into making the animations in DMC2 look good like just in a vacuum yeah. those, they look good like the way he's swinging a sword Oh yeah, but it's, yeah, it's absolutely. not based on anything you as the player are actually doing. You're just smashing that button, and then Dante's doing cool-looking stuff. Whereas in all the other Devil May Cries, you're the one who is doing the stylish things. Like you're you're making the decision: Am I going to like sting her in? Am I going to try to close the distance? Am I going to try to launch? Am I going to do a short combo and then watch what the enemy does, or am I going to commit to a long one? Like you're making all these little micro decisions in the moment. And Devil May Cry Two is just kind of like, well, yeah, you know, sit back, whatever you do, press any button, Dante will do something like cool. And it was yeah. this complete misunderstanding of what it is that makes that stylish action so much fun in the other games. Which, I mean, moving forwards in the series, like I enjoyed the first so much that I'm willing to give uh, other entries in the series a, 
a chance because it's this thing where it's like, sure, I bounced off a two, but from what you guys are saying, it sounds like they have since two moved on and they've really sort of embraced and evolved seemingly on that core identity in the way that really rings true to the original while never feeling like it's sort of like just resting on the laurels of the success of the beginning of the franchise. But I guess if there was one Devil May Cry game to play next, which one would you suggest that I play? Like if I'm only going to have time to play one of the Devil May Cries moving forwards, what should I, uh, what should I play? What would be your recommendation? My, uh, my brain is telling me three or, or no, my heart is telling me three, but my brain is telling me five. Like, five, I think, has the lowest barrier of entry. It has the most, uh, just in terms of the actual gameplay, I think it has the most rewarding gameplay of them all. But three, I think, is it's just dated enough to be a little bit rough around the edges, but it has such a good story. It has such good uh, enemy variety. And and even three has a couple of weapons and ideas that never make it into the series again and are, are so fun on their mm-hmm. own that... Like, you get to play an electrical demon bat guitar as a weapon in 3, and they've never done that again. So that that alone is an argument for 3, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And also you get to see, I, I guess, a lot of the stuff with uh, Virgil in particular uh, is set up in 3. And I think Virgil, we haven't talked about it much in, in this episode, but uh, Virgil's so crucial to what makes the series good that uh, that yeah. setup for Virgil Very 3, much. I think, is, is just... Uh, yeah, you, you need to see how that goes I will say like just throughout the first game I can sort of see a lot of the uh, groundwork of this overarching story that doesn't just sort of rest on the fact that it is again like the divine comedy light it really does build this own world and kind of seeing how things are going to connect to one another in terms of characters and relationships and how those are going to flourish again to like to bring it back to Resident Evil the original DMC really capitalized on the storytelling element that I've always found fascinating about the original Resident Evils, which is the overarching conspiracy that ties everything together. And then with Devil May Cry, at least I was intrigued in seeing how this ties into the further sequels and stuff to the point where maybe I uh, put in an extra hour or two with Devil May Cry 2 just to see if I could get more of those story elements that I wanted. But um, it definitely sounds like in addition to like the gameplay being evolved on, they sort of capitalize on that story and those relationships in the later Devil May Cry sequels in a way that uh, sounds promising for somebody like me that is coming to this franchise fresh, but I'm leaving the first game wanting to experience even more of it, even though the sequel I was uh, not nearly as taken with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense because it, it doesn't take anything forward. It doesn't, you know, in terms of gameplay, in terms of story, it like I said before, I, I can understand how Matt felt back then. You know, with the game uh, when it's your first game in a series, because you wouldn't know the the wonder of that first game. You know, it, it's and maybe for me, you know, at that time being what nineteen going on twenty at the time, it it makes sense that it would have been perfect for me. You know, the, the original Dead May Cry and you know, everything I loved, as I said. But yeah, it, it, it's it's perfect. And I think, like I said before, if I was to recommend uh, a game in the series beyond that, it is DMC, Ninja Theories, DMC Dead May Cry, because that game, to me, is still the closest we've got to 
a real reimagining of what that first game was. Sure, it's not as full of humour, it's not as cheesy uh, as that game, but it hits a lot of the right notes. You know? It understands evolving combat, uh, you know, switching up styles that Free had. Um, it has a soundtrack that is among you know, the best in the entire series. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it has it reimagines Mundus as you know, every man character that is, you know, like I said, this guy down the pub that. You don't want to get into a fight with, but thinks he's some sort of god. In this case, he is. And yeah, it has some of the most imaginative, creative, most creative boss battles in the entire series. The, the whole Bob Balaban thing, the whole whatever, you know, all that shit they do there is amazing. And it got shit because their Dante put on a wig and said nah because and threw it at the screen and that called so many fanboys to go crazy because it was them Ninja Fury rejecting Devil May Cry if you will you know as it was at that point but at that point in the series you know you can make your plaudits for free and how good that was you know 2 and 4 really didn't help that series and it was it was going out of style you know at that point it, it was not being helped. I think Devil May Cry 5 actually does learn lesson from what Ninja Fury did with that with it and takes it forward. And I think that has been the legacy of Capcom in the modern era has is that they have learned from their mistakes. You know, they haven't gone chasing other people's ideas of what makes a successful game in recent years. They have gone back to what actually works. And I think they were humble enough to admit that Ninja Fury got it right, you know, with, with what Devil May Cry should be, you know, in terms of style, in terms of the unapologetic sort of new metal-esque, you know, almost outdated sort of attitude, if you will. Because even in Devil May Cry 5, it's there, you know, as we said, Dante is this you know, dinosaur like in terms of what that game is and it works perfectly um, in much the same way as I said that going back to the original game now gives you a very different perspective on it than you may have once had had you played it back then you can appreciate it in both timelines and now it is true with Devil May Cry 5 and yeah, so it's wonderful. I think this series deserves to be revered a, a lot more than it is right now because Five did so much right. And yes, it set everything as it should be. It's a shame that Ninja Fury's entry didn't do what it should have done, and it never will now. I, you know, now they are part of you know, Microsoft. We're, we're probably never going to see that actual sequel to that kind of Devil May Cry and especially given the success of 5 but I'm still cool with that because Capcom have shown they get it, they, they get what works and, and that comforts me and I know that unlike with Resident Evil where they had a misstep maybe with the remake stuff because you know, for Resident Evil 3 because they had to 
and it was in a quick time frame here at least they can take the time they're not working on old material they they can take it to somewhere new they can still have the idea of what they want to do whilst you know trying different things you know and i am out everything capcom got going i am so confident now with, with the future of devil may cry in a way i haven't been since that first game and that is a really strong thing and it is it's very hard for me to feel that happy about a series these days you know uh especially when the original creator isn't involved in a series, you know, like if an, a Metal Gear Solid remake, for instance, comes up, is being announced tomorrow, I would still be very sceptical because a lot of what made that series click is in its creator yeah. and its original team. Devil May Cry has proven itself now twice, in my opinion, that it doesn't need to have Yoshinori Ono, it doesn't need to have Hideaki Kamiya, doesn't need to have Shinji Mikami to work. You know, it can do what it does so well without those guys, and they are big industry figures. And yet, here it is: the series is still ongoing. If because. Like I said, Capcom have learned the right things, and it will continue in a way that I have that, like I said, fresh confidence. Where I don't have that for maybe Resident Evil, whatever, because it, it's got to a stage where it, it, it can exist as this thing that is both the old and the new, in a way that Resident Evil doesn't. You know, because Resident Evil is nowhere near what it used to be. You know, it's it is a very different beast now, and but that's fine because they, you know, shat the bed so badly with that old system. So yeah, again, another rant. Sorry, uh, but yeah, <laughs> a passionate I, one at least. Yeah, I, I I've got such love for the series, and I just it has only been reignited in recent years because of what Ninja Theory did and because of what they did with Devil May Cry 5 mm. and to go back to like to Devil May Cry, the original game and to really get into the third and the fourth games has only sort of reignited that for me I am so happy to love this series as it is and you know Devil May Cry will always be one of my favourite games uh, time does not take that away from it you know and there are games from 2001 that don't have that you know gta 3 is like a mold breaker in what it did but it's aged so badly you know Mm. like in so many ways and it is literally unplayable in so many ways not the same for definitely writing you know that game is perfect in what it does yes it has flaws yes you can argue that the fixed camera doesn't always benefit the player in that game and the boss battles are still a bit you know even coming back to it don't feel right but ah, there's so much of it that, that stands out even from the games that tried to copy it in many years since and you can only say that with a few sort of trendsetters in each genre out there you know when you think of Valve with Half-Life 2 or, or even what Kojima did with the late Metal Gear Solid 2 to 3 and this, you know, they are games that really push stuff in the right way 
and people have never really sort of captured it in the same way since you know it's like there have been attempts but nothing quite like Devil May Cry yeah the fact that in 2019 you know almost 20 years later we got a Devil May Cry game that felt like Devil May Cry it didn't feel like it's the modern imagining of an ancient genre it's it was like this straight up is a Devil May Cry game no question about it yeah and uh and I think part of what's so what makes that work is that they're so willing to jettison things that just don't work in series. You know, they try new things and if it doesn't work, they, they get rid of it. I actually yeah. what you were saying about like, it, it's kind of funny that it went from the reception of the Ninja Theory Devil May Cry to how well received DMC5 was, even though I see a lot of things from Ninja Theory's Devil May Cry in Devil May yeah. Cry, particularly in Nero. And uh, I think Itsuno uh, was one who said that they kind of consider the uh, the story of you know the sons of Sparta to be over at this point, which you know Dante and Virgil their arc is complete. And in all honesty, you know I want to see more Devil May Cry games, but I'm actually kind of okay with it if we don't continue that story. I'm actually fine with where they left it. I would be perfectly happy to see them start something new, like let's be a mm-hmm. game focused on Nero. You know, I, I mean I I want them to put Dante and Virgil in the games, but they could just be like a yeah. or something. Like don't don't let me stop playing Dante. <laughs> Yeah, they found the middle ground, I think, between Nero as he was and the Dante of DMC, mm-hmm. you know, and that was a smart move, in my opinion, because then they made it, it's eerily similar to what Platinum did with Raiden, you know, in Metal Rising, yeah. in making a character that was really sort of derided for, like, why am I playing as this fucker when I, I want to be playing as Dante uh, <laughs> Flash Solid Snake? It's like now we show you exactly why you'd want to play as this guy. You know, it's like, and yeah. both came in at this point where they are like, you know, trying to show the original character in a new light and trying to show you how fucking badass. Yeah. Difference is in Metal Gear Solid uh, 2 is that you already, you know, you can see that in a new light. Whereas in Devil May Cry 4, you already know Dante is what he is, you know? It's like you've had three games, two of which really personify what he is about. And by that fourth game, it's like, we don't really need to know that he's an arsehole that has a heart of gold, you know? It's like, we know this, yeah. you know? It's like, it's like nothing changes that. And the cop-out it sort of gives where it's like, oh, is he the bad guy? It's like, he's so quickly resolved that it doesn't matter. And that did no, Nero no service at all by the, that point. And so Devil Cry 5 at least sort of took, and this is exactly where it takes DMC into its heart, is that Nero becomes that character, that Dante, and that Nero. And, you know, I mean, less, probably less that original TM Devil Cry 4 Nero and more that DMC Dante. He doesn't feel very close to the DMC 4 Nero to me at all. Yeah. No, it's not much really. He is very much, he, yeah. yeah, he is very much more that Dante from the alternate universe. And I feel that fits more into the logic of it, you know, and that feels like it's this sort of weird canon now that maybe the story of DMC is like, this alternate history version of what happened in that story. And he is like Dante from a different timeline. And that would be brilliant. And I think they probably, that would be good to sort of connect up maybe for a future game. They probably won't, but 
And they played the character. I want to see Wade. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, again, th- this was another strength of uh, Five was just the backup characters to that game worked a bit better. Yeah. I mean, Nicole was, Nico was just brilliant to have in that game and they clearly knew it as well because they embraced it and made sure she had plenty of scenes like that I mean Trish felt like a bit of an afterthought but you know she's never had as much time given as Lady or or Nico and that's unfortunate because it's there but maybe maybe because they're just weirded out now at this point it's like because like well, you only exist because you're like the facile of Dante's mother and that's it that, that, that's your only reason for living and <laughs> they kind of resolved her arc you know they resolved her arc in the original game that's it it's like what else can you do with her it's like <laughs> done um, but you know it's always nice to see Trish back again all the same but yeah she is now probably the third tier character, you know, female character in that series, which is unfortunate, but they, they clearly sort of had nothing else for her. So Trish did end up being the uh, best boss fight, ironically, in DMC5. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it is there. It's like, but yeah, again, telling that, that that's her involvement, you know, now, <laughs> so that, that she is that. Make her a villain for five um, minutes to make her interesting again and then resolve it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which again, if you look back, it was done better in Del McCry 3 with Lady, you know, in terms of like this antagonist who's not an antagonist. And yeah, yeah it's like, and it, oh Christ, even with the original game, we you know where, the, sure, she wasn't a boss fight, so to speak, but she was you know, involved and you had this little portrayal, and that was great. But yeah, it's. Poor Trish, she deserved better, and I think maybe they could give her a bit more to do the next game. So I guess in bringing it back to the original, Matt, was there any uh, elements that we skipped over that you still find hold up really well before we wrap up? Really, the only thing is, uh, I just want to give another shout-out just to the mechanic of Devil Trigger, because I feel like Mm -hmm. that's something that gets overlooked. Like, we, we talk about, you know, juggling and style system and everything, but Devil Trigger itself, to me, is such a just fully formed and robust system because, you know, yeah. it's essentially meter from a fighting game or, you know, even from, like, old, like, Dynasty Warriors games, you know, build up a kind of screen-clearing move and everything. But rather than doing that, what they do with Devil Trigger is they make one of the most versatile tools I've ever seen in the game, where on, you know, the basic level, it makes you heal and makes you have higher defense and move faster, right? So it's immediately yeah. a defensive tool you can dip into, but if you don't use it for that, you can use it to shorten the recovery frames on your attacks. You can use it to get more staggered, to break an enemy's poise. And I find that when I was first learning the game, you know, Devil Trigger was kind of my defense button. It's like if things were getting too hot, I can go into Devil Trigger, I can back off, I can heal, I can you know, regain my footing. But when I've kind of learned these games, Devil Trigger becomes like a tool that I'm just using. I'm going in and out of all the time. To be like, I need to apply yeah. a little bit extra pressure on this move go into Double Trigger for just a second, and then go out of it. And that culminated in a... I know we're talking about DMC1, but, but that culminated in its perfect form to be in DMC5 with something called uh, Quadruple S, which is this idea that if you get your style ranking all the way to maximum, 
you now have this just insane version of Devil Trigger that turns you into basically a boss yourself for like 10 seconds. Yeah. And if you can maintain that style ranking at maximum, you can hop into that boss mode at no cost of resources for just a second. So it means like for yeah. you, you go and do a combo for five seconds, you are the strongest threat in the entire game. And then you go back to normal, and then if you can keep that style going, you can do it again. You can just keep doing it indefinitely. And just, um, you know, I, I really had thought of this as something that maybe took shape in Death May Cry 3 and then got perfected later. But in revisiting DMC 1, I was amazed to see that it's all there from the beginning. You know, you get, you can, I forgot you can straight up fly and double trick. Yeah. DMC yeah. Like it's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, that, uh, that's one of those things I think, uh, and, and also especially because Devil Trigger is probably the best reason in Death May Cry 1 to taunt. Because, you know, mm. you put yourself in danger, you do a taunt, and you get some Devil Trigger back immediately, and it just opens up so yeah. many options. Like, just, uh, I, I'm a sucker for things like that, like game mechanic that just becomes this multi-tool. And, uh, mm. yeah, it's, it's, that's one of my favorite mechanics of all time. And it was right there from the start. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. 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 Absolutely agree with that. Yeah, and I mean, the taunt itself, too, it fuels back into Dante's personality, right? Of him being this shithead with a heart of gold. It's just like funneling that into the character and their sort of temperament but then also having a legit effect on gameplay and really again talking about how on the surface it seems very simple but then once you actually play it it feels almost disingenuous just to label as a hack and slash even though that is what it is in a lot of ways Um, and yeah I mean just that example that you just gave is one of those elements that my brief time with the sequel like does not capitalize on that in the same way and then that kind of funnels throughout the entire uh fundamentals of those games but how about you neil were there any elements of the original that i uh, that we glossed over um yeah i was looking at my sort of list of things we haven't talked about yet and um i think the whole section with the underworld is brilliant uh, especially artistically speaking i just think i think uh, matt touched upon it earlier that the whole sort of pulsing alive feel uh, to certain corridors of that place i just unsettling in a really interesting way and I it does feel like the perfect bit between you know block between you know this whole gothic castle and all the weirdness in that and then you go into this underworld that's really just like full-on Dante's inferno if you will and then goes to this whole you know majestic angelic palace uh, of ego that the, is Mundus's layer and yeah it's very short in terms of what the game actually is and you, you're not really there for that long but I really love the design of it it has almost a H.R. Gaia sort of uh, feel mm. to, to it you know and like there's a couple of corridors you go through there where like it sort of you know it really does pulsate and it's like, like uh, it's pumping blood through that corridor as you go through it and to this day i think it's such an effective way of doing it you know it's visually it looks superb now you know even now there are games that would would love to replicate something as unpleasant as that you know and yeah it's a fantastic sort of this note to get to that final part of the game i also love 
you know, I, I just want to put this out in that Mundus fight where you start it, where he just very casually just sort of takes you out into fucking space. You know, like that, like the whole environment, the whole, he just melts the whole environment away and you are in space uh, and then, then you're not. Kamiya can't not do a space carrier level. It's, it's crazy. Like, you just, I know, the- yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, Again, going back into the whole thing about Dante and how casual everything is when in Resident Evil, that would be like over the top and ridiculous and absurd. Uh, here, it's like, of course you're going into space to fight God. It's like, because, you know, Bayonetta goes and does that again later on, you know, where it's literally like, okay, yeah, this is it. You're going to a big sphere to, to face God at the end of the game. Uh, and like I said, that's maybe where that game suffered a little because, like, we've kind of done this already, you know, it has been done, you know. And <laughs> especially when you sort of come back to that fight over time and it, it gets easier, it just was like, you know, here I am facing a god and he doesn't, he's not shit, you know. It's like, it's brilliant. It fits the narrative of that game so well. It's like, this god thinks he's all that. I'm going to teach him that he's nothing, and it—it's just wonderful to this day. It is such a wonderful feeling to just sort of knock Mundus on his ass, yeah. you know. Not just that time, but then the time after, and the time after that, like that. Just when he thinks he's got you, and it again sort of ties into that sort of fascination with anime at the time, where it's like, oh, the hero is knocked down and beaten and it seems like he's been defeated despite all this power he's got and then he just goes and fucking lifts up again and just smacks the shit out of the bad guy one more time and yeah what is he he's talking to the kind of mother's statue and it's shooting lasers it's like how long are you going to do this come and fight me on your own terms and then you basically fight Mundus in the environment he's most comfortable in fighting you in yeah and then you're like fine I'll do it yeah yeah totally <laughs> and then you do literally just finish him with guns yeah. Yeah, it's like and that's perfect it's like it's like yeah sure supercharged guns but it's like does that not feel like the perfect thing for that period of time where it's like yeah I'm going to finish you with the ultimate gunshot you know it's like it's Dragon Ball style sort of like get a yeah. regular gun because that wouldn't work but now I've got super gunshots boof like that and you're dead like that and that's it and it just revels in that delightful absurdity that made things like Dragon Ball Z so compelling to so many people at that time, you know. And that is why I think it works to this day, is because so much in, in anime has, has existed. When you think of My Hero Academia or stuff like that, it still has that at its core, this idea that even... You know, even when it seems like someone doesn't have that much power, they have some sort of absurd, you know, demonic power in them that can make them this super being and they can kick all kinds of ass that you wouldn't think they would. And yeah, it's there. And that combined with the Matrix, which, you know, as we know, was so heavily influenced by anime, you know, it, it was the perfect thing. It just to get that kind of ending to a game. And maybe that's why I love replaying the game so much. You know, it's because you get to the ending and it just feels right. You know, there's no disappointment in, in that fight with Mundus, you know, and those free fights with Mundus, if you will, is that 
you always feel like you're going to come out on top. You always feel like confident that you're going to kick his ass and you're going to be showing this guy who thinks he's God that you're the boss and it doesn't matter. And like Ben Etta, where it's like that knowing sort of thing, this is a case of like, he is just going to kick this God's ass because it's the right thing to do. And it just never gets old. Yeah. And I think that for me, at least coming in as the, uh, the novice of the Devil May Cry universe, it's apparent from the opening hours of that first game, right? And to see them really sort of just take that and then roll with it and it becomes more and more extreme and yet they're continuously unwavering and just being unapologetic with that. And I think yeah. that that's the true key to what makes the first one so special. And I think that in my getting to go and uh, play one of the other sequels and seeing them sort of carry that on in a way that works really, really well and refines yeah. and evolves on certain mechanics... Uh, I, it has been made abundantly clear why Devil May Cry is uh, as loved as it is and why, like Neil had said, it needs to uh, it should be probably more revered than it actually is. But that's why we get together and have these types of conversations. But uh, since I was the uh, the mostly the odd man out on this one, Matt, it was great having you on uh, and getting to share your insight in the game and your kind of just general love of it. Uh, and of course, Neil, your passion has always came through with this. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for talking to you guys about this. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on again in the future. But uh, yeah, absolutely. before I let you go, I just want to let people know that uh, they can check out your artwork, which should be no surprises, phenomenal. Uh, you can follow Matt on Twitter and Instagram at M-A-T-T-P-A-I-N-T-E. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.